The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. Riches don't help in the day of wrath, but justice rescues from death. This is the word of black and red. Hello, and welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I am your host, Michael Belong, the wise old Lama NB, joined today by Char, once again, from Barefoot to Emmaus, and a new guest, Stephen Morrison, who is the author of the book, All Riches Come from Injustice, which I have just dived into in the past week. Uh, If you've been listening to our recent episodes, you've heard me reference this book over and over again because I am just so excited about this conversation. So we're going to go ahead and dive on into that conversation. But first, Stephen, would you tell me a little bit about your political tendency, your religious background, and what motivated you to write this book? Sure. Um, well, yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the invite. Um, yeah, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. I was Methodist, charismatic uh, upbringing. I currently am sort of still Pentecostal-ish, I guess, uh, more reformed these <laughs> days um, from an influence of Karl Barth was one of the early theologians that impacted me. Um, politically, I do uh, identify as a socialist, definitely within the leftist perspective, more of the revolutionary socialist uh, than necessarily like a, a libertarian or, or a, a liberal socialist. And my interest in uh, political thought really began with my own theological reading. Um, some of the early figures such as Jürgen Maltman, uh, James Cone, and Black Liberation Theology, and then obviously uh, Gustavo Gutierrez and all the liberation theologians kind of piqued my interest in this necessity for doing economics and liberation in conjunction with theology. And so all of that really um, in- inspired me to really just, you know, make some sort of a statement of what uh, a Christian uh, leftist perspective could look like. Um, I grew up fairly more conservative politically. Um, and so it was a long transition for me and then becoming a little bit more radicalized as time went on. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. And the the book is kind of the first step towards being more explicit about that and a, a part of a longer project that I hope to um, constructively work towards uh, in the vein of a um, Christian socialist uh, theology. Today is going to be a special episode where we look at that book primarily. Now, Stephen, I think that one of the most interesting things uh, about this book is I I became a leftist because I was also raised uh, uh, very conservative. I my upbringing was more fundamentalist than that. Um, we thought that the Southern Baptists were liberal crazy people, um, <laughs> oh, so <wow. laughs> that was that's where we were coming from. And so I had never been introduced to any ideas that would even be considered liberal, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I read the Bible for myself and realized that I could either be a conservative or a Christian, but not both. And so um, to me, that that's one of the big motivators for this podcast, right, is to read the Bible and to recognize the ways in which God is, is at work and liberating people throughout it. Um, but I love this approach that you've taken to uh, talk about the church fathers. What, what motivated you to talk about the church fathers instead of, um, instead of just focusing in on the Bible? 
Yeah, I definitely resonate with what you're saying with with your kind of story as well. I think the Bible is obviously I do have a whole chapter on the scripture in the book. I I always say joke that I'm still a good evangelical at heart. I have to start with the <laughs> scriptures. Um, but no, the Church Fathers. It, it was kind of just this um, profound discovery that I, as I was doing reading, um, like I said, I'm I'm kind of working towards a project, a longer project on Christian socialism. And while I was doing that reading, I just discovered just how much. Um, wealth of kind of anti-mammon critique that was in the early church fathers. And I've always had an interest in the early church fathers, but some of the early theological uh, questions that I had, um, some of the most profound answers that I did find were th- through the church fathers, particularly people like Athanasius, the Gregories, the Ca- Cappadocians, all those people. And so I always had this warm appreciation towards the church fathers and then to discover that there was this side of them that was explicitly um critiquing the ways that mammon um, is a rival deity, uh, the ways in which, you know, they were concerned for justice, learning about Basil and his his early hospital and his charity work and um, and his work towards uh, um, helping the poor. And so it was really just from hearing people like, was it John Colt has that book um, on Christian socialism. He has this whole section about the early church fathers and reading that was like, well, there's a lot of wealth here. And I just kept running into this where there were so many great quotes from the early church fathers. And um, the the initial idea for the book was to just do like a basically just edit a bunch of texts together. But I found that it would be a little bit more helpful to have some commentary in, in, involved with it. And then it just burned into a whole uh, argument unto itself. Yeah. But yeah, that's... <laughs> That's kind of where the idea came from. Um, it was originally going to be a small chapter in this in this longer book that I'm working on, but there was just too much material. And so I was like, this yeah. deserves <laughs> some space to breathe. And uh, there's just so much wealth of information and, and good insights that are overlooked. And, and then the pragmatic side of it, too, is that evangelicals are a little bit more conservative. We do have the shared heritage of the early church fathers. And so if we can start the conversation with scripture and with the early church, then maybe that can be a way to bridge uh, the gap between some of that, uh, you know, to be able to speak to those more conservative people. Because I, I think my family's still quite conservative. Um, and so it, I always have a little bit of them in my ear of trying to bridge that gap. Um, so so all those things, yeah, combined kind of kind of comments here. <laughs> Just a quick word there. Modern theologians, it's very easy to put them into political boxes, but it's a lot harder for conservative uh, Christians to put those same boxes around the very first theologians who are reflecting yeah. from that same context, uh, you know, what is the text actually saying? So there is a real power to starting from the beginning, seeing what are these first Christians saying? It's also a time, you know, with the uh, rise of Christianity's relationship and then assimilation into the Roman Empire, how you have this critique of empire, too, that's really powerful from the get-go. Yeah, for sure. You can take someone like Barton, um, say, oh, he was a Christian socialist, so we don't have to read him. Yeah. But you can't do that with, like, Augustine. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, you know, it's funny because until the 1940s and the 1950s, the majority of clergy were openly socialist, right? And it was only with the 1940s and the 1950s where we had McCarthyism, right, coming in. And McCarthyism not just in the state, but also in the church, where the most conservative voices were the loudest in the congregations, and they complained about their ministers reading the gospel and <laughs> and began to kick them out, right? And so we're only now seeing a resurgence. And, you know, I talked to a lot of clergy all over the place. I hosted a podcast that was just clergy playing games together. And so I 
there are a lot more socialist clergy than we think there are. Um, and it's because we are deeply steeped in the Bible all the time. Mm -hmm. We're deeply right. steeped in these things. How can you come away from those things and think, oh, yeah, no, it's totally fine for me to crush my neighbor because they have less money than me, right? Um, but ranting aside, <laughs> the chapter that I, you know, we biblical foundations, that's what this show is all about. And it really is rooted in those commands of Jesus for the rich to give up all their wealth. And you talk about uh, wealth in, in a particular way throughout this book. Would you expand a little bit more on that and the way that wealth is related to this nebulous Jewish concept of mammon? Yeah, sure. Um, definitely an important part of the book. And it was part of a discovery for me that gave me fresh lens through reading Jesus's words, especially and then how they resonated in the early church. And then even going back to the Hebrew scriptures, um, as kind of setting the precedent for me, kind of the way I've typically framed it is and frame it in the book as well is that um, the true rival of, of Yahweh is mammon is is um, is money. And that that's a pretty you know explicit point that I think Jesus is trying to make um, in many of his statements and many of his parables make similar points, but that that's been just overlooked both theologically. We don't treat theologically mammon as some sort of an idolatrous thing. Uh, we treat it as like an ethical issue, um, mm. but it actually is a theological concern. And, um, you know, the whole, you cannot serve both God and mammon. And in the book, I, I, I try to do some backing up and placing Jesus in the context of the Jewish Torah, um, particularly the idea that you have, you shall have no other gods before me. And so it's this restatement of the first commandment in a more kind of uh, direct application of that to the issue of wealth and mammon. And um, so, yeah, that's kind of helped frame for me a little bit of Jesus's teachings around mammon, um, this per personification of wealth, um, where it becomes this thing that we think we can somehow have a neutral relationship to it, but actually it is something that takes a power and, and, and very much in that sense of an idolatrous force that we create an idol and we think we're doing this thing, but it's actually enslaving us and it's actually mm. putting us into yeah. a bondage. So that was really um, illuminating for me for my own studies, but I, I think it connects really well with not only the then what you see in Acts 2 and 4 in the early church, how what, what did the redemption of Christ actually look like in practice for the first Christians? It looked like sharing all things in common, selling what they had for the poor. And so just kind of the real rubber meets the road experience of what it looks like to build the kingdom, to work towards the kingdom here and now by the power of the Holy Spirit is quite radical in its in its. Um, um, phrase and and um, and I think connecting all those points and then pointing a little bit further even towards the early church and the need to take all these things and apply it to capitalism, which I think is the absolute epitome of of mammon idolatry um, in in the world today. I don't I don't think there's any more successful system that has made the chief end of human life to be the accumulation of capital than capitalism. Yeah. You know, one of the ways that I love to when I'm when I'm talking to someone who um, doesn't really know what socialism is, I like to explain that capitalism is the idea that our the way that society should be oriented is around capital, and socialism is the idea that society should be oriented around social relationships. Mm -hmm. And so, like that dynamic, you instantly know just from that definition which side is the guy who said the most important <laughs> thing you could do is love your neighbor going to be on. You know, in the in those two things, but. Um, you know, the thing that I 
the thing that I love that I think I get from Richard Bauckham and Michael Gorman in their studies of Revelation are the fact that, you know, money is not just idolatrous in this in this vague sort of sense, literally the mark of the beast is that coin, mm. right, from Nero, where um, there was originally a silver tire, a Tyrian coin that the Jewish people could use to buy offerings at the temple, and it didn't have any symbol on it, so it wasn't idolatrous to use because it wasn't claiming that the Caesar was God. And so they could use that coin to buy the offerings and everything was good and dandy. Then Nero comes in and says, nope, you can't have those anymore. You have to use these coins that have my face on mm. them and say, Nero is Lord, right? And so mm -hmm. the mark of the beast is something that has a head on your hand and you use it for trade. And anyone who uses that is instantly marked out as separated from the people of God, right? Money is literally the thing that separates people from God <laughs> in, mm. in mm -hmm. the book of Revelation and the ways that that is all tied up into empire. That is the church following the teaching of Jesus really seriously where we are not in our modern context. <laughs> right. And a fun fact there, if you look at the stories where Jesus is directly addressing money in the live scene, you never see him touch the money. So there's the, you know, bring forth mm, the coin yep. and it, he never says he took the coin. There's the paying the taxes and mm. the coin literally comes out of the mouth of a fish. And I think there's something really profound to think about this reality that Jesus won't touch this other God. That's that's awesome. I've never thought about that before. But but that question, right? That question of what is God's relationship with man and God's relationship with with money uh, directly plays into this conversation of can the rich even be saved? Mm. Um, and I have to say that's probably my favorite chapter. Mm. Now, dear listeners who have been longtime listeners, you know that I am a universalist, right? You know that I am very avidly in the camp of everyone gets saved, right? But it's worth talking about the fact that there is a difference that Thomas Aquinas points out for us between salvation and sanctification, mm -hmm. right? Um, he calls it the two folds of grace, right? If you're looking at a book, you see the first half is salvation. It is the getting out of hell half of the equation. And sanctification is the becoming heaven. Um, not getting into heaven, but becoming heaven, right? It's the um, going from living in this life that is sin and death and all of those sort of things into living in a life that is made up of heaven. And so in this chapter, if you wouldn't mind, what is this debate that's, that's having, can the rich be saved when we know that God is a powerful enough God to save whoever the hell God wants to? It definitely was. I, I appreciate that chapter two. And I think for me, it was a kind of surprising discovery to realize that that was a genuine question the early church was wrestling with. Uh, so much so that it led to treaties on the salvation of the rich and um, Clement being the first to uh, kind of work through that. But the, yeah, that, that the fact that that was being entertained was uh, something that I think would surprise a lot of Christians, especially today, where we kind of argue the opposite in many cases. We kind of flip the coin and we say, actually, the people on the street that are homeless, they deserve mm -hmm. it somehow. Maybe they're not good enough for grace or, or for salvation. And and so, yeah, that was an, a um, kind of shocking discovery to realize um, not only that that question was being entertained, um, but that it was the reasons why, um, particularly because of this, this allegiance idea and this idea of um, the necessity of proving salvation, not really just you know, I think every evangelical can quote being saved by grace through faith. Um, but <laughs> the actual like tension in the scripture is a little bit more nuanced there where, yeah, but faith requires good works uh, as we see in James. And so there's 
there's a there is a this aspect of sanctification in there um, that has to play part of it. And so, yeah, it it was a really interesting discovery. Yeah, and the and the quotes that I pull out from there were really helpful. And I mean, the ultimate conclusion is yes, that you know the rich can be saved. But uh, I always like uh, the Shepherd of Hermas's kind of image that he puts forward, which is of this tower, which is the eschatological church. And um, there's this stone that's a, that's a circular stone, and it's trying to fit into the church, and the church is only these square blocks that are making it up. And so, the you know, Hermas is asking this angel, is like, why, you know, what what does this mean? You know, what's happening here? And, and it's the rich that are trying to enter into the church. And um, the idea is that they they can enter in, but in order to enter in, they would have to cut off their edges and and square their edges in a way that is very directly in reference to Jesus's words of uh, to sell everything you have and um, follow me. And so it it was really interesting that that aspect and and the other metaphor he uses about walking over these briars that are extremely painful was helpful too. And I think um, those pictures and those sort of answers were really radical, I think, to how, you know, We've just completely reversed the narrative in a lot of the evangelical church today, where it's almost the opposite, that you prove that you're a good Christian by being rich. And it's the assumption that because Elon Musk is the richest man in the world, he's smart somehow and he's good, but actually yeah. he's not <laughs> either of those things. Uh, and so, yeah, it's this it's this interesting reversal that I thought was quite profound and a good way to start the book. I, that's the chapter that, that uh, kind of introduces the church fathers uh, as actual quotes after the uh, biblical um, foundations. But yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. But yeah, definitely is an important thing that has just been completely lost uh, today. Yep. Yeah, the Shepherd of Hermas is sharp and incisive towards the rich in a very mm-hmm. powerful way. But what's important for listeners and especially the evangelical crowd that puts such an emphasis on scripture, sola scriptura, right, is the fact that the Shepherd of Hermas, and you make this point in your book too, was considered scripture by many of the church fathers. That this was not just some text that was floating out in the ether. This was profoundly important to the early church. And deeply influenced their ethics, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. there's this point that I think you make it in, a, in another chapter, but the analogy that I thought of, um, I work with people who are experience homelessness every day. And so when you work with people who experience homelessness, you can see what addiction looks like, right, firsthand. And it can be absolutely wonderful if we go out and you know we get this person freed of their addiction but if they're still homeless, have we actually fixed the scenario for them, right? Like, have we actually improved their lives? Yes, yes, they're not in the thralls of that addiction anymore, but they're still facing a serious problem there, right? So so we've gotten rid of half of the problem. We haven't solved the whole thing. And in fact, if we got them housing first, then it would be a lot easier for them to get over their addiction in the first place, mm. right? Yeah. The power actually to this point that you're making, uh, Micah, is that relationship has been proven to be central to healing addiction. And what we see with the issue of riches, which again, Stephen, you do make clear in your book, is one that it is about alienation. It it separates us from relationship. So I actually think that is a Mm -hmm. fantastic analogy to consider how the rich are addicted and in their addiction, the cure is the very thing that their addiction is keeping them from, which is right relationship with other people. Well, let me let me put it a different way. If you're getting out of hell, what are you getting into? Mm. Right? Is like that that's the two folds of grace that I think of. Like if we're thinking of the two folds of grace as a book, right? If you're getting out of hell, 
but you don't get into heaven. You're just stuck in the binding, right? You're not all that much better off than you were <laughs> than you were before. And if you are saved in the afterlife, but you don't get to participate in heaven here because you're so addicted to your money that you're still making your life a hell, then like, what was the point of being saved in the first place? Like, again, universalist, I think everyone gets out of hell. But the question is whether or not we get to participate in heaven now and riches are the thing that keep people from participating in heaven now because they think that they're participating in a heaven that is actually just an illusion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Gifts always require something of us. If you were to gift me a poem and I were to use that paper as toilet paper, have I actually received your gift? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> but so so if, if we're gifted life and we don't live that life, we didn't actually receive the gift, even if that gift is universally offered. Amen. Amen. That'll preach. I'm still in that. <laughs> um, <laughs> the next series of chapters, I think, just the foundation of capitalism, right? Capitalism is based on privatization. It's based off of greed. It's based off of the idea that luxury can be a good thing. And it's based off of usury, right? And those four things were traditionally understood to be sins. But because of the way that our culture has been warped and our, and our church, frankly, has and our religion has been warped by these perceptions, we no longer think of those things. And so first off, this, this idea of the earth as common, I, mm. I just absolutely love. Would you expand on how the earth is common a little bit? Yeah, no, I, I definitely think it's um, kind of something that short circuits the logic of capitalism very well. Um, for me, I always relate it back to the psalm that, that says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so it's it's this idea that the, the earth does belong to the Lord fundamentally and it's his footstool. And so this this then grounds the idea that but it's then been given for the benefit of all in common. And so this this kind of logic of capitalism that it's kind of winner take all the people that can take the most land they they deserve it and pass it down forever in in perpetuity is is anti uh is, it's against you know the christian vision of how the world's supposed to be so yeah it just came up over and over again as kind of a central ethical commitment that a lot of the early church fathers would say that the earth is for all who who are you to privatize what god has made common uh to hoard for yourself this is one of the big critiques that a lot of the fathers leveraged against the rich was who are you to privatize and to hoard for yourself all of these riches that God has given for the good of all in common. And I I, I typically kind of think back to uh, food uh, production and consumption and how this is such a silly problem in the world, really. I mean, silly is kind of a bad word for it, but it's it's a uh, evil problem, I guess is a stronger word, that we produce enough food to feed 10 billion people, uh, but Still, there's millions of people that, that starve and, and suffer from malnutrition and, and all of these things. And so if the bounty of the earth has not belonged to any individual, it can't belong to you or I or, or one or two people, it, it's a gift by God through creation. Um, that's a strong affirmation of God as creator. You know, evangelicals get on the whole thing about God's the creator, but you know, the ethical implication of that is that God created the world for the good of all. And so this privatization of food production then directly should be critiqued as this hoarding of something that God has given for the good of all. And, you know, you can then go and apply that to housing is a good example. Who who are we to say that we own the earth? There was something uh, recently I was thinking about just the, I don't remember if it was on Twitter or something, but somebody was talking about how when the colonizers came to America and the indigenous population was, uh, the colonizers asked them, you know, how much for this land? And, and 
and they thought it was the most ridiculous question they could ever be asked. What do you mean, how much for this land? How much for the sky? And they, they thought they were playing a joke on them by putting some price on it because they thought all these crazy people are just going to actually put money to land. But that's that's this twisted logic of capitalism that actually, if you un- unveil it and go back behind it, really is a, a um, nonsensical, really. It doesn't it doesn't fit within within nature. Hitting that point over and over again was, I think, important to stress um, because it did, it does short circuit probably, the, like you said, the very first kind of defining feature of capitalism, which is this privatization of, of what's common, you know, and yeah. you see that throughout history. Yeah, the, the phrase panthakoina in Greek, all things in common that we see in that early church of Acts 2, Acts 4, it stems from the Greek word koinonia, which you have a whole section about. I really appreciate that you do that because in my research, and this is a topic that I'm super passionate about as well, koinonia is the central lens through which Paul particularly, uh, but you mentioned Luke as well, views Christian fellowship. That, mm-hmm. that it's this idea of fellowship, but but even deeper than that, it's solidarity. It's yeah. a sense of seeing oneself in the other and then seeing God in the other as we see God in ourselves. And so to recognize that central to the Christian message is this idea of commonness, commonness between you and I, that we are the same, we are one in Christ, right? There is now no longer barrier that divides us. You know, if we're thinking all of one in Christ Jesus or in the Ephesian sense that Christ has brought, you know, East and West together with Christ as the cornerstone, but the sense that as our persons, but then also then what that role has to do with our possessions or the things we consider to be under our control and domination. No, it's not ours, it's God's. And all of it is intended for all things in common, which I just think is is so profound. Longtime listeners of this show will remember back to episode three, I think, when Ken and Abel are um, suddenly stuck in this competition. Really, Cain feels like he's stuck in this competition with Abel. That seems to illustrate this profound shift in society where where society moved from nomadic cultures that maybe they had cows, maybe they had cattle, but Abel was not locked down to the land because he took his cattle to where they needed to grow and wandered around, right? He didn't think, this is my land. But Cain, because he planted things, because he planned to be there for the long term, said, no, this is my land. And the field that he murders his brother in had to be his own field, right? And so there's this whole discussion about the fact that he basically waters his field in the blood of his brother, right? That his land is consecrated in the blood of others and the suffering of others. And that privatization then continues on when we talk about Abraham and Lot, right? Where Abraham and Lot's flocks are talked about as being so numerous, they were literally depressing the earth. Like they were they were causing the earth to fall into itself and they decide that they can't be together again anymore. And so they separate. Abraham and Lot, the closest familial relationship that Abraham has with anyone else in the book of Genesis until Isaac is born is separated and Abraham and Lot never speak again because they have this dispute over property, this dispute over the privatization of land that they can't both afford to live on because they have so much wealth that, and they aren't willing to stop expanding their wealth long enough to hold this place in common. They separate and are never again in relationship with each other, which is is why eventually God sets up the year of Jubilee, right, for the people of Israel, so that all of these debts get reset, so that no one can say, oh, I have all this land and you have nothing, because the point of the land was that we were all meant to have it instead of just the few who used violence to get most of it. 
that leads directly into this other point um, where sometimes I was reading The Earth is Common and then read The Hoarded Wealth and I was like, we're saying the same thing and mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of yeah. these a lot of these things because like the earth being held in common the contrast is the privatization um, but then talking about the ways that that privatization feeds this hunger so that it's never sufficient um, so mm-hmm. if you could talk a little bit more about how hoarded wealth is theft for the early fathers yeah well based upon that logic of um, the earth being common and then um, to hoard more than uh, your fair share is is considered theft for those who who are in need and this was kind of a profound aspect of the early church fathers that was really challenging for me and it really begins with basil has that great quote where he talks about the shoes that are extra and i'll probably butcher the exact quote that's why i write about it but uh the the cloak in your cupboard and and the the bread in your cupboard that you have that's extra actually it it belongs to the person that doesn't have any uh the extra shoes the you know all the it goes down this whole line of of things and that just this um anything that you have that you can give to alleviate someone's hunger that you don't he considered it theft and and uh, consider that you're robbing those people. And Ambrose picks up on that theme a little bit as well. And, and they really ex- radicalize this to some extent where say those who you could help, but you choose not to help, their blood's on your hands uh, in the most extreme sense, you know, and I think people, death tolls sometimes is a kind of pseudo argument to make, but it, it still is interesting to think about the fact that, you know, every day that, you know, thousands of people die from hunger, malnutrition and capitalism when we don't have to have that system that we can feed those people that blood is on on the um hands of the capitalist class uh, and of uh, capitalism as such and so yeah that that was a kind of stirring and an emotionally uh, charged realization that i i think was so profound in, in some of the early church fathers and and many of them just have really they don't hold back any punches in terms of um making it very clear that um that and i i tried to kind of mimic the like silly libertarian phrase with that by saying <laughs> you know taxation is theft it's like no hoarded riches yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so whether that landed or not but um I thought I thought that was a fun way to put it, but it's it is an important I think point that we've missed as well. We treat it very individualistically and everything as well. You know, I just have this choice, and I can, you know, it's it's up to me. But it's it's just that that kind of forcedness, and um, one of the ideas that I think is really helpful with um, some of the liberation theologians talk about this: how you know how do we love the God that we can't see? Um, and for them, it's it's by loving the God and the person that we can see. And so actually there's that pragmatism of how do we prove that we actually love God? It's not through, you know, praying a little bit more, reading Bible more. It's actually by helping those concretely in need and that that's um, an act of expressing love. And so all those things I think are, yeah, it's definitely the other side to that commonality of the earth chapter. Yeah. First John makes that point really well too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And who are you stealing from, Right. Whose blood is on your hands? You know, mm-hmm. it's easy to say the poor, and that is more than enough reason to do otherwise. But scripture also points to, and the early church fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, one being, it's Jesus's blood that's on our hands. Well, Jesus is the one yep. we're stealing from, right? You know, Proverbs, if you press the poor, you dishonor their maker, right? Or Matthew 25, when you do these things or don't do these things, you're doing them to Christ. Mm-hmm. When, when Basil says, the bread in your hoard belongs to the hungry, the cloak in your wardrobe belongs to the naked, the shoes you let rot belong to the barefoot, the money in your vault belongs to the destitute, all you might help and do not, to all these you are doing wrong. 
And I just love that because in my tradition, we pray for our acts of omission, right? We, we mm. ask forgiveness, not just for what we have done, but for what we have not done, right? And I think that often that is such an amorphous thing like and it's important to not feel guilty about like the money that i would have given to feed my kid i didn't give to some kid in africa so like i should feel guilty about that like i think a lot of the time we don't want to guilt trip people who are already doing their best right but <laughs> when people are not trying to do their best right when people are are hoarding these things are keeping these things are are stuck in here like i'm sitting here in a closet with more clothes than i could than i can wear um, in two weeks, right? And I, I wash my clothes often enough that I there's things in here that I never wear, right? And the fact that I have all of these things and my neighbor doesn't, the, the neighbor that I see every day doesn't have those things, means that me keeping them from him is stealing from him, something that he could be using a lot more effectively than I can. And it is, you know, keeping something from, from God, right? There's the story in Acts 5 where the couple, Ananias and Sapphira, this couple go and sell this plot of land and claim that they're giving all of it to the church, right? But secretly, they keep some of the profits. And I don't think we're told that it's a significant amount of money, right? They just keep some of it and lie to the church. And when they come to the church to do that, they are struck down dead because they have hidden this small amount of money, right? Where they have stolen this from God. And that is like the least bad thing that could happen to them. <laughs> because, because in Matthew 25, Jesus says, if you are not taking care of me when I show up in the least of these, you're going to hell, buddy. Like, <laughs> you know, and um, as a universalist, I still think there is a hell. I just don't think anybody stays there forever. But I would much rather that we experience heaven now. Like, and, and, and that is the ultimate point of the book, right? Is that we're trying to experience heaven now by creating a culture that is not so indebted to mammon. Um, the other thing that I was thinking about, particularly in this chapter, but throughout the book, was you know, all the time we have these conversations about why is it the Christians will show up and be good people on Sundays, maybe even bleeding into Sunday afternoon. And then the, every other day of the week, we look exactly like the rest of the world. The yeah. only thing different is that we show up to a building on the Sunday morning, right? Why do we look exactly the same? Well, because for six and a half days, we're worshiping the same God as everyone else, right? And only on that half day on a Sunday morning are we actually worshiping a different God by the way that we act. Or pretending to. Yeah, or pretending yeah. to, right? <laughs> that, that might be a little. That might be a little aggressive, but you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if you can worship one God six and a half days of the week and then act to actually worship, <laughs> you know, Adonai for that right. last yeah. half. I, I don't think that's possible. <laughs> And that is directly related to to the next chapter, right? Where we're talking about the sin of luxury. Um, mm -hmm. And mm. the traditional word for that is sloth, right? Um, sloth is laziness, yes, but it is also a laziness that has a lot more to do with being fed grapes by a half-naked person who is fanning <laughs> you with a golden fan, much more than I'm playing video games on my one day off a week, right? Um, mm -hmm. So <laughs> if you would talk a little bit more about the sin of luxury in it as it's talked about in the ancient church yeah for sure i um that analogy is helpful what you said but the um thing that i try to make a big deal about in the book is that you know 
the bounty of the earth is a blessing. It's good. We're, you know, we shouldn't wear sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes for it to be, you know, spiritual. But the difficulty is luxury on the one hand and misery on the other. Um, and so that's really, I think, what a lot of the early church pointed to was you live in this lavish life where, you know, grapes are being fed in your mouth and there's people that are starving on the streets and people that don't have homes. And it's more of the unequal distribution and uh, shared wealth is a blessing. And so I, I think one of the misconceptions that sometimes comes up with kind of an anti-capitalist perspective is you say, oh, you just want everybody to be poor. No, we just want people to have enough food to eat and health care yeah. and access to the basic human rights that everybody should have and, and is a, given as a gift by God, but people have gotten in the way of that. And so I think the critique of, of luxury should um, kind of be framed within that thought um, because it would be easy for, you know, a conservative to be like, oh, you just don't want me to enjoy nice things. And it's like, no, that's not the problem. I mean, yeah, have your video game day. People, you know, work and they need a break. And, you know, I think one of the things with capitalism too is that we're all actually to some extent, victims of capitalism, even the capitalist class, they are alienated just as well, but in a different function, of course. And they're, you know, of course, the oppressors as well. I wouldn't downplay that. But in the sense that actually everything is subjected to the will of capital, which is this dead idol that Marx has that great phrase where he calls it vampire-like. It, it lives off living uh, labor and living uh, humanity. And the capitalist class is just a vehicle of that. And so, yeah, all of that to say that um, I think for me, the critique of luxury is this critique of inequality um, at its core and this critique of um, differentiated wealth. Um, I use that phrase from Jose Miranda to, to stress that, that it really is the idea that somebody hoards great abundance in one hand while there's so many that suffer. And that's what's considered unjust, um, both in the early church and through scripture. And the other aspect of that, I think that's important and kind of the more um, ethical and, and kind of, um, I guess, pastoral role is this sense of capitalist culture pushes a Christian to pursue luxury as if it's a um, good. And I think cutting that off is an important step in a kind of anti-capitalist uh, witness to, to be able to say that actually that's not, shouldn't be, you know, the goal for your life. And actually that's, you think you're serving something that's good for you, but it's actually going to come around and be the thing that um, alienates you from your humanity. And so the endless pursuit of luxury and endless pursuit of, of uh, accumulation actually is dehumanizing um, for those who pursue that end. And so, yeah, all those points I think are involved in what the early church was doing. And um, it's another shocking thing that, um, you know, I, I would stack that up against the social, the prosperity gospel people and, you know, how prevalent that is in, in America, especially. Um, but really, it's become this big export around the world. Um, even it's latched on to a lot of places in the global south that, you know, because of the export of evangelicalism has kind of made an impact there um, to kind of nefarious ends. But um, yeah, it's a it's an important aspect as well. I am constantly struck with guilt whenever I just play video games for a day, right? And it behooves us all to remember that God gave us a day off. Like that was the right. point: is that we had to have a Sabbath. We have to have a Sabbath, right? We have to have a Sabbath. Like <laughs> that is um, that was not a negotiable with the ancient Jewish people, right? And Jesus says, "Yes, we can do good on the Sabbath, but." That does not mean that Sabbath was made for us, right? Because we were supposed to do this. And we have to say, we have to have a Sabbath. We have to have at least one day where we don't do any work. And remember that this was instituted at a time when most people would work four hours a day, right? <laughs> and, like people were not working 
eight, 10, 12, 16 hour days, right? They were working when they needed to work and then they would stop working, right? They would build things while they needed to. And then it got too hot because it's Israel and, and, and it's always warm, right? And we were still told you have to take a day off, right? If you're working, you know, you work 30 hours a week and you still have to have a day off and you have all these other moments of rest as well. And I think one of the most beautiful things is that in the Jewish conception of the day, right, it starts with rest. It starts mm -hmm. with evening. It starts with a break. And then you work so that you can take your break again, right? But that is distinct from laziness, right? That's distinct right. from luxury. That is taking a break from these things. Whereas luxury is this endless pursuit, right? And you can do all of those things, you can have all of the things and still not feel as fulfilled as just taking a rest would. Mm -hmm. you're, you're talking about when the Sabbath was instituted. And I wanted to point out as well that it came immediately in the context of the exodus from Egypt, from an impressive empire that pushed the Israelites or the proto-Israelites to backbreaking labor such that they could never revolt, right? Yeah. That they could never worship God and that they could never resist empire. And so there's all this aspect of the culture of empire, which is in a way, I guess we could call it proto-capitalism, namely by the way that it views people and their labor as commodity and pushing them to inhuman degrees. And so the institution of Sabbath and the reason why it was so important was to heal the proto-Israelites from the culture of empire to restore them to right relationship the way that God intended. Yeah, and right relationship to the earth, right? There's the whole mm -hmm. let the earth rest and everything. So there is this kind of eco-theology side to it, to the Sabbath that Absolutely. I think is important. And the rehumanization of yourself, I mean, you know, coming back to yourself, I think obviously the anti-capitalist lines very much that work under capitalism is inherently alienating. And so, yeah, I'm big, you know, proponent of, I think Sabbath is an act of resistance against empire, against capitalism, against this, this need to continually commodify everything in your life. And I think there's a lot of ways that this, you know, plays out within society, but yeah, it's definitely, if we don't rest because we then get to recharge to work, we rest because this is actually <laughs> entering into the rest of God. This is actually the fulfillment of who we are supposed to be as human beings. And it's not just because we need to be better machines on Monday that can work harder. It's because <laughs> yes, we actually exactly. are entering into the true like part of who we are as humans. And I know people that do different types of Sabbath, but it's not just, you know, sitting on the couch. It's usually an active form sometimes too that can be refreshing. But it's it's more about truly entering life, um, I think is is a profound part of it. But yeah, it's definitely a definitely an important um anti capitalist thing. And every leftist, after they finish reading All Riches Come from Injustice, should go and read Walter Brueggemann's The Sabbath as Resistance, uh, because it mm. is an excellent piece. And The Sabbath as Resistance stands in stark contrast that we are made to rest, and that stands in stark contrast to the laziness of the rich, right? I love the line in your book where you say that Paul is actually talking about the rich when he says, um, those who do not work shall not eat. And it mm -hmm. becomes the logo of, you know, so many socialist governments and socialist movements that the lazy will not eat because all of our hard work under capitalism is happening so that very few people can live lives where they do Almost nothing. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I think Jeff Bezos recently described his day as uh, basically getting up and making one hard decision a day. And it's like, 
your hard decision was how to eat your eggs. Like, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> just that that luxury is stealing food out of the rest of us. Right. And another thing that I, I loved, I think it's in that chapter and it might be later on, but where you lay out the statistics of how many people that capitalism kills every year, right? It's 20 million. If we believe the capitalist lies that communism over a hundred year period killed a hundred million people, right? Now we know, longtime listeners, you know that <laughs> that number includes everyone who died in the Second World War because apparently communism killed all of them. We can forget the fact that capitalist accumulation of wartime hordes is what started the First World War and the First World War is why the Second World War started. But, you know, we, no, it, it was all the commies, right? And then, of course, uh, <laughs> all of these bajillion other humans human beings who have died 100 million over the course of of 100 years, right? Well, just look at those statistics that you provide in that book. They come from the World Health Organization, right? The, the, The bane of capitalist modes of accumulation and protection of the pharmaceutical industrial complex. 20 million people die every year from capitalism. So capitalism kills as many in five years as communism killed in 100, right? So if we're weighing, just thinking of the trolley problem, um, (laughs) capitalism hurts a lot more people, right? And that goes back to something that the early church were talking about. There are these lines over and over again that talk about the fact that this luxury is murder against people. And we're living in the United States where half of the country who are explicitly set up to defend the rich pretend that the life of a fetus is a human being so they can call their opponents murderers. And the other half that are dedicated to the other half of the rich people say, no, actually, it doesn't matter and abortion should be a right. And let's not talk about the fact that so many of these women feel like they have to have an abortion because they don't have enough money to survive, right? Like, if you are pro-life and you believe that that fetus is actually a human being, why are you not providing the money for that child to live? Yeah, I have a friend that wrote a really good book on that exact same thing. I I interviewed him on my channel on YouTube, and um, his name's Mako Nakasawa, and he wrote a book on abortion policy in the United States, but he he specifically goes back to the early church fathers to look at that very question. Is like, actually, they were tr- looking at more of an a holistic answer to this question. And they were asking, are we just trying to ask like a black and white question? Are we actually looking at like the economic situations that lead people into this dire, uh, in that time there was um, death by exposure was kind of the common way you just left a child out, um, which is obviously very brutal and inhumane, but they, Augustine actually has this line where he was saying that we can kind of show mercy to that person, even though they're doing a kind of brutal thing, because we're recognizing that they're under extreme situations and circumstances. And I think that's a tangent, but I I just wanted to plug that book. It's a very good um, study into that that's nuanced and and does a similar thing as Terms of Mind does that goes back to the early church fathers and actually, you know, tries to ask how they were wrestling with these questions. So piggyback on the earlier point too, I I often tell people that one of the most debunked books in academia is the Black Book of Communism, the one that you're referring to, and the very <laughs> same editors that are on that have come out and openly debunked it and said that this was an ideologically driven, non-research-based book, and you know, but it's the only one that gets cited. Uh, I think, to my knowledge, I've never seen anybody cite anything else but that text to um, kind of put up some sort of statistic. And yeah, it's it's very much true that it, it kind of gets blown out of proportion. I'm sometimes skeptical of some of the death 
death toll. Um, I know I have a version of that in my own book, but um, I think it's a dubious <laughs> argument sometimes. But I think there is something about looking at the uh, because there's always more to the story than than just a simple black and white scenario. But I think that there is something to looking at the contrast there and saying that yeah, capitalism is doing the sin of omission every day by not providing medical care. I mean, even looking at like the the medicine that we have in in the so-called West and in the kind of more developed nations that we kind of hoard and we don't create the infrastructure in uh, countries that are still dying from malaria or from uh, different preventable diseases that we can prevent. And I I, I bring up the example of Thomas Sankarna from uh, Burkina Faso, which is a really good example. He immunized uh, hundreds of thousands of children. And I think they estimate that he saved, um, I, I think it was actually millions. He he saved about, I mean, every year he saved tens of thousands of children's lives just from that immunization campaign. And that yeah. was uh, kind of a profound act. And he was a socialist. He was he, he uh, overthrew the colonialist French government in, in Burkina Faso. And um, yeah, very impactful for actually just saving people's lives. And I think as Christians, if we're looking at, you know, Matthew 25 is an important text for me. What are we doing to the least of these if we're not uh, visiting the prisoner, if we're not healing the sick, if we're not helping those who have this real need, then are we actually practicing, you know, Christian faith? And then we see people who are not, you know, explicitly Christian doing those same things. And we have to wonder what we're missing. Yeah, to this point about the violence of capitalism and the way that it is so under communicated in our society, despite how prolific it is. You include a very good quote in your book about how so many of us see ourselves as embarrassed millionaires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that falls to this dystopian reality of capitalism in how it is tempting for all of us to see ourselves as having this potential. I think to, you know, the the big debate of uh, what dystopian world are we really in between George Orwell's 1984, you know, and then um, Brave New World, right? And and there's this idea of the authoritarian state in 1984, the oppressive big brother that I think lost the battle, so to speak, that Brave New World having this more insidious, everyone thinks that everything's going well, but really they're all suffering under the system. That is much more of what capitalism is in our world today is that people think it's working when it's not. Even the people who are suffering continue to vote in their not their best self-interest. They continue to act in ways. They continue to propagate the system despite the way that it harms themselves because of this belief, whether that I have the potential to be a millionaire or belief that, you know, this, this inherent right to freedom without understanding what freedom even means. Because a Christian sense of freedom is about freedom for, freedom for right. the other. It's freedom to love one another. The freedom from an addiction to wealth that allows us to give our money away and Mm -hmm. actually engage in loving relationship with each other. (laughs) Yeah. I think that a transition to the next part is usury, right? And the idea that money is not neutral, right? Growing up as a teenager, I must have heard this every time we read the text that money is the root of all evil. And then someone immediately said, no, money is neutral. It's how you use money. And no, in the Bible, it is the root of all evil. (laughs) And and it goes back to the way that money is used in the capitalist system, right? Capitalism is based on capital, which is the amount of things that people have already amassed. And so um, that one person having that and another person not having that means that that person has to loan it to the other person, right? And our entire system of debt is based off of that second person, that person not having enough, having to then pay an exorbitant fee to the first person. Why was usury banned in the early church? 
it, it, it was another interesting discovery. I think a lot of people don't even know what usury is. So to define it, it is no. an interest on a loan, which in the world today, we think, well, everything kind of runs on having some sort of a loan. You do car payments, you do house payments, you know, all of these things to, to charge interest. So interest on the loan, I I related it to God's ownership over time uh, is an interesting way to think about it. That the fact that um, you know we talked about the the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof is kind of this critique of privatization of property. But if you apply it to the privatization of time, usury takes this thing that is God's domain. Um, we can't say that we own um, time itself. We're, we're trapped within uh, the limits of time and takes that as uh, their own ownership and uses it to abuse and um, oppress people who are of, are in limited uh, means. And so it, it was seen by the other church as a form of kind of abuse. And, and one of the interesting metaphors they tended to use is it's like you're pretending like you're a physician, that you're, you're going to help somebody by giving them this loan, but actually you're harming them by doing so because you're putting them into this bondage of needing to re- repay this um, exorbitant interest rate um, that then exasperates their wealth and their power. And so recognizing that money and to some extent is a form of social power, especially when it's hoarded in this form to what in capitalism we would call capital, um, but then it still had this social element of having this ability to say, I, I can lend you this money that will save your life and you have no other option. And so because I have that social power over your life, I can charge anything I want. And that leads to this kind of bondage and slavery to this person. And so it was it was banned within, um, you know, you see it within in the uh, Old Testament. It was is a, a principle there. Um, but yeah, it was then put into the early church where it was considered it was banned for clergy too. you know, there you in some pockets, you were denied a Christian burial. If you practice usury, you could not be um, part of the priesthood. You couldn't take sacrament in some uh, extreme cases. It was certainly banned for anybody that wants to be um, clergy in the church. But uh, for in a lot of cases, it was also banned for being a member, um, being part of that church too. And so it really wasn't until the Reformation that the door opened to accepting some form of interest. Um, Calvin was one of the ones that kind of initiated it. To his credit, he tried to limit it. But with the emergence of capitalism, it just kind of became this thing where now the church just has no, especially the um, evangelical church. I had a conversation with a friend about this, and he's like, I've read the Bible for you know decades, and I've, I've literally never thought about that connection, the fact that the church considered this to be sin. But today we just take it for granted. And I think that kind of shows how uh, the capitalist logic has interjected into our thinking and our spirituality that we can't really have the imagination to break out of it. But yeah, it was it was interesting to look through the church laws and they very much treated it as kind of this thing that you're almost doing the worst injustice to person because you're not just saying that you're going to do evil to them and doing evil to them. You're saying that you're doing good to them, but with your other hand, you're doing evil to them. And so mm-hmm. they consider that uh, extremely unjust. And I kind of wanted to end the book with that because I think if you get rid of usury, you can't have capitalism. I mean, capitalism is a mm-hmm. system that <laughs> relies upon infinite growth on a finite planet. This idea that the the line, the magic Scott stock line has to keep going up forever, <laughs> 10% yield every year, or else the system crumbles. Um, and so it is it is at the core logic of what capitalism is, um, not only in the uh, domestic sense with like the stock market and things like that, but you know through um, economic imperialism with the IMF, World Bank, all of these things where we we loan rates that come with all these strings attached, put entire countries into bondage and debt, um, expropriates their land uh, for cash crops, uh, and all kinds of the uh, abuse of the. Um, the the west of the global south and the developing nations 
I wanted to lay the book out in that way where I end with this point about usury and pull these quotes because then it, I think it directly connects to a very explicit critique of capitalism today. I'm just thinking as I'm hearing you talking about usury, there's some scripture verses that come to mind. You know, we have in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, give to the one who asks of you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. And I think Luke takes it even a step further, uh, do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And what a different mindset of thinking, not only not getting an interest back, but maybe if I give to you, I'm not going to get anything back at all. Mm -hmm. And yet it is still the Christ-like way to live to say that if you are asking for it now, it's out of trust and relationship that you need it. And so I'm going to give it to you, not expecting anything in return, which is just such an anti-capitalist way to think about a relationship to what is under, you know, our current stewardship. <laughs> I'm just thinking in my own city where there is a, a mega church that has a bank that like lends money <laughs> out at interest to people, right? Wow. Um, oh my goodness. Yeah. And they will do short term loans. Like they'll do cash advances. The the contrast there between sixteen hundred years of the church uniformly saying no and people in the medieval ages found workarounds and, you know, forced people who weren't Christians in their communities to do it. And that is in part why anti-Semitism was such a major problem uh, throughout Europe, because the Jewish people were the outsiders. So they had to be the people who did this sinful thing. And there's a whole cycle of violence and anti-Semitism and all those sorts of things that we're going to explore in a different uh, (laughs) episode. (laughs) But, you know, the, the fact that this was the ultimate sin, and then the Reformation comes about, and there is a good argument to be made that the Reformation was successful not because Luther and Calvin were so convincing, but because Luther and Calvin allowed for usury. And Luther didn't even allow for it as much as Calvin did, right? And the fact that they did suddenly meant all these princes had an economic incentive to defend this Protestant movement, and suddenly it was allowed to continue, right? And I'm a Protestant. I I am very happy to not be part of the Catholic Church, and yet, because of the way that the Church was interwoven with the power of the state, that those things weren't possible, right? Um, And that that infiltration was allowed in. This economic relationship has created an alienation where the poor are made continuously more and more poor out of the power that is wielded over them by the rich. Mm-hmm. That wealth and and money, particularly in capitalism, but even at this time, was a form of social power and a mm-hmm. form of social domination. And so in this domination, there was a, a rupture of that relationship, alienating the rich from the poor, alienating all of us from uh, the shalom that God has has designed humanity for. I was wondering if there are any final thoughts you wanted to share on the chapter of the tyranny of mammon. Yeah, sure. I I think it's um, an interesting metaphor that I take from John Chrysostom, and um, where he talks about money being this tyrannical thing that uh, stands over against us and, and is actually um, kind of this enslaving reality. And so, um, yeah, I think it's a it's an apt metaphor for capitalism. I think it's a very good um, applicable line. I mean, obviously, um, Chrysostom is writing a thousand plus years ago, um, and so it's it's a different system that he's working with. But I think it's still an applicable idea that um, this thing can become a tyrannical master that then lords over us and in a uh, unjust way. And actually, I think 
to some extent, the you know the basic Christian confession that Jesus is Lord is this confession mm. that there is no other Lord but Jesus, and that's that's not the sense of being in bondage to um, to Jesus, but it's it's this liberative experience um, that we're we're freed for the lordship of Christ. We're not under some sort of uh, tyrannical thumb of either the world or of death or of sin or of mammon, um, but we're liberated into um, being sons and and servants of God, and that that's actually this liberative experience. And I think there's a place for reflecting on that sort of shift of, I, I don't belong to mammon, I, I belong to Christ and to the new creation in Christ and how that is in and of itself against the systems of empire and against the systems of um, uh, capital. And so, um, yeah, I, I like that chapter a lot. I think it was a good way to uh, kind of really bring the point home about how I'm trying to, really throughout the book, I'm trying to make this argument that um, the early church obviously had no concept of capitalism, but a lot of the ideas that they're bringing up point in this direction. If, if we're going to apply their their witness and if we're going to apply scripture's witness to today, uh, what that would look like is an anti-capitalist political ethic. And I think that's an important um, aspect for me of the book is I, I'm not you know somebody that claims that Jesus was the socialist or this or that. I, I think that's sure. you, you're jumping through history in a, in a misapplication in an inappropriate way. But I do think that the ethical teachings of, of Christ and of the early church does does point in this direction. And so um, that's, you know, where I'm kind of landing with all of that. Yeah, this goes back to something we were talking about at the beginning, that Mammon was personified in a way. It was understood as a rival deity to God. Mm-hmm. Um, that verse, you can have no other gods before me. And then if you are a slave to one, you worship one and not the other. And then Jesus specifically says, you cannot worship both God and mammon, right? That it is the counterpoint to Adonai is is mammon. So bringing up that spiritual component that it is something that tempts and consumes and uh, masters our soul, that, it, mm-hmm. that it, it has a spiritual component. It's not just an economic system that we're talking about. It's not just interpersonal power relationships, but it's it's one of a systemic nature, which you describe, and it's one that is profoundly spiritual. Yeah, definitely. Definitely has that that parallel dimension too. And I think there is a spiritual dehumanization that takes place uh, under capitalism that hasn't been made enough of in the church. And I think it's a big part of some of the spiritual evangelicals or, or a lot of Christians will talk about uh, modernity and all these things being some issue. And I think um, they don't often link that to uh, the emergence of capitalism and, and how that actually is a is a cause behind this uh, spiritual alienation and the spiritual kind of bankruptcy that happens because it it, uh, it does materialize everything. It commodifies everything within life. And if everything's a commodity, then we can't um, you know, have this fullness of, of life that, um, that I think is, is brought about through the, through the spirit. And so, um, yeah, definitely that, that spiritual component is important. Yeah. You draw a lot from liberation theology, which I love. I resonate with you, um, mentioned this in this chapter, um, how orthodoxy and orthopraxis have been separated in our modern day, but this was not the understanding at the time is that what you believed was your action that 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 faith and faithfulness were both from the same word pistis. They're 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 pisteo. Um, these are these are not separate things where you can have an isolated belief from a practice. And so, if you are worshiping God in the sense that you are believing and then also being faithful to God, there is a direct linkage to how we live our lives. And so, if our lives are 
demonstrating the tyranny of mammon, that is a reflection of the faith that we put in mammon, even if in our minds we don't conceive of it as a god that we worship. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that is so important in as we're evaluating these things is that the reason that the early church fathers are so pertinent to what we're saying today is that they were living through an imperialism that has simply morphed into capitalism, where the systems of oppression and war and and the Pax Romana has become the Pax Americana. Imperialism has simply turned into a different form, and it is the same problem now that they were facing back then. We can use their wisdom to help eliminate the problem now, but we have to be willing to stand up for it. Well, Char and Stephen, just thank you so much for (laughs) this wonderful conversation and being a part of a movement that we are working to bring the kingdom of God together now. This conversation has been so fruitful and wonderful, and I hope that we are able to have it again and again as we continue on. And uh, I would love to have you all back to continue talking about how this all relates to the Bible and how that story helps us lead to liberation. Now, past Micah, take it away. Thank you, future Micah, and of course you, our wonderful listener. Together we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. Please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, you can reach me through the Discord or by email at thewordinblackandred at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. And thank you, past Micah. Now go, and read the tradition from which we come. And remember that faithful people have been working for centuries to create the kingdom of God. We are not alone, and we will build it together. Shalom. Shalom.